0: For so many of us, our day-to-day is filled with feelings of bondage, of being stuck. For some of us, it is being stuck with internal struggles, fears, even addictions that hold us tightly. For others of us, it is being stuck in a set of rules we dare not break, fearing what others and God will think of us if we are fully known. But what if there is more for us? What if there is freedom? If you have a Bible with you, you can turn it to the book of Hebrews. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, the text in your order of worship. If you don't own one, there's one on the back. There's four on the back table. You can grab one of those. Uh, however, like we tend to say week after week it 's always good to have the text in front of you uh, just so you can see that i 'm not making all this up. This season the season that we call Advent the the uh, the weeks the four weeks that precede Christmas, we are taking a close look at how the New Testament describes Jesus and we do this with the conf- the conviction that Jesus is not kind of your your run of the mill religious leader he 's not your your typical wise man. He is, as Christians believe, far more. He is God in the flesh. He is a person without comparison. And so two weeks ago, we looked at, at Colossians 1 to see that Jesus is uh, very God of very God. Something we're going to confess a little later with the Nicene Creed. And then last week, we looked at the fact that... Uh, because Jesus is God, he served, which kind of struck at some of our preconceived notions of what it means to be all-powerful, right? We think if if somebody's all-powerful and he's in control of all things, that must mean that he's going to do things for his own good and steamroll others who get in his way. But that's not what we saw, that in fact it's because Jesus is God that he served. This week we look to the writer of Hebrews to see that Jesus answers our deepest questions. So if you have your place In Hebrews chapter 1, if you'd stand, in honor of God's word, that's our habit here. We'll be reading verses 1 through 4. This is God's very word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is God's word for our flourishing. Will you pray with me? Father, come and open our hearts to you. Open our minds Open our ears to hear from you, our eyes to see you. Make us ready receivers of the grace that you provide for us in Christ. Holy Spirit, if you do not move and speak during this time, we all waste our times. And so we ask that you would be doing that. Would you work for our flourishing? Would you preach your gospel to us? Jesus, would you let who you are and what you have done come forward? Because you alone hold the words of eternal life. And so we ask that you would speak, that we might listen, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. I was reminded this past week as uh, kind of I was rereading one of C.S. Lewis's, um, I guess it was a sermon that he wrote called The Weight of Glory, in which uh, he, he speaks of the fact that humanity, you and I, we are far too easily pleased. That, that we are satisfied with playing in mud puddles and, and scooping up mud pies when we're offered a, a vacation at the sea, is the way he puts it. Of course, he puts it much better, but he's C.S. Lewis and I'm not. Uh, and, and that, that struck a chord with me as I was studying this text this week to, to realize that a lot of what this passage is speaking of is just that very fact, that we have longings, you and I have longings, certain things, expectations, hopes in our hearts, and, and we're quick to settle, not for too much, not to set the bar too high, but in fact to settle for far too little. And so that's, to some extent, what this writer, the writer to the Hebrews, is writing about. Now, it's been a cliche since the 3rd century, at least, that only God knows who wrote this letter. Um, But why it was written is a little bit easier to grasp. It's, It's a letter full of imagery and language, all drawn from the Old Testament. Which which uh, tells us that Hebrews was written to a group of people, probably who had come out of a Jewish background and become Christians, but knowing what they knew of all of the expectations, the hopes of the Old Testament, the hopes of this is what it'll be like when Messiah comes and Jesus has come, and they have trusted him, and then things don't quite go the way they thought. They're disappointed. Disappointed with the way God has acted. Disappointed with Jesus and they're tempted to return to Judaism because their expectations haven't quite been met. Can you relate? If you're not a Christian this morning, this is probably your greatest fear, right? You're in here checking this out and you're like, oh, this is great and all, but what if Jesus isn't who you say he is? What what if he can't deliver on the things you say he can deliver on? What if all of this is a bunch of bunk? If you are a Christian, you've probably gone through something like this, or maybe you are now, where you fear that maybe you were wrong about Jesus because things don't seem to be working like you thought they should. And so this passage this morning speaks into that. It speaks to it this morning. We're going to look at it in three ways in which it speaks to it. First, it talks about a word in silence. Secondly, it talks about a rule in chaos. And then lastly, it talks about a purity in failure. Okay, Let's begin with the definitive word. Look down at the first two verses. It says this. At various times and in various ways, God spoke long ago to the fathers through the prophets. But now in these last days, he spoke to us in his son. Now stop there. This verse communicates a couple of really important things I want to highlight. But the first is very simple, but also maybe not so much. And it's just this, that God speaks. That seems to be kind of, duh, like, oh, of course God speaks. But, but actually, to say that is, is rather controversial, because to say that God speaks means that he desires to be known. Because you can't ultimately know a person fully unless they reveal themselves. You can know a lot about them. You can see how they act and things that they do, but to know their inner motivations, the, 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 their hearts, you can't know that unless they reveal themselves. And this is, what this tells us is that God desires to be known. And that's strange to many of us, right? Because we often view religion and spirituality as kind of man's search for the elusive God. Man's search for the hiddenness of God. Like, he's hidden, he's coy, he's kind of distant and other, and we're, we're constantly on the lookout for him, trying to find him. We even use metaphors about different religions as, as like blind men trying to describe the elephant that, is in, that they're all kind of touching a part of. The Bible doesn't give us this image. The Bible tells us that God wants to be known. In fact, he wants to be known by those who don't want to know him. He speaks to those who don't want to listen. God speaks. But that raises the question of how, right? To say that God speaks brings us face to face with the fact that many very contradictory voices... Uh, today and always claim to speak with the voice of God. So how is it that God speaks? The author puts a very specific bounds on it here in this passage. He says that long ago, God spoke in diverse ways to the prophets. Now, when most of us hear the word prophet, we think of some kind of person doing some craze, ecstatic dance, maybe with little finger symbols or something. like. But that's not the picture that the Bible gives us. The Bible's understanding of a prophet is a little different, and we don't have time to go into all of it. But what it means here, specifically for us, how it touches what we're looking at, is the writer of Hebrews assumes that a prophet is someone who's communicating God's word to his people. And, and specifically in this passage, he's speaking primarily about what we would call the Old Testament, what he would call the Bible. Okay? It's about God's word given to us in the Old Testament. Long ago, God revealed himself to the prophets, who then spoke to the fathers. Which is another way of saying their ancestors. Their ancestors. Jewish people. And this is important. Um, The argument of the Bible is that long ago, God revealed himself to one particular people. Not to all peoples, but to one particular people. And in saying that God spoke to the fathers through the prophets, our author is, by implication, saying that this is the only way and the only people to whom he spoke but he goes on and says, in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. Now, first that phrase, last days. If you were in the church during the latter part of the 90s and into the early 2000s, that phrase has a little bit of a kooky flavor to you, right? I mean, it tend, you tend to have images of large banners with dragons on them behind the preacher who's like, uh, yeah. In the Bible, the phrase last days is a technical term, okay? It speaks of the time in which God would come to to bring to culmination all of his many promises that he, uh, to, to rescue the world, to reconcile us to himself. For the purpose of what our author is saying here, what's important for us to get is that these last days in the scripture is a definitive moment. It's a, it's a cumulative event. It's a, it's a one-time, it's a culmination. There's a finality to it, so that when he says that during these last days God has spoken to us in his son, we shouldn't be expecting anything further than that. He has spoken. He has definitively made himself known. And this definitive word, the writer tells us, has come through the Son. Now, when he says the Son, what he means is Jesus. I mean, For most of us, that probably makes sense, but it still needs to be said. He's talking about Jesus. So what he means is that though there were various periods and various methods of speaking that God spoke through prophets, in these last days, he has spoken definitively, finally, in the Son, in Jesus, He is the definitive revelation of who God is. Now, here's why that matters as we look to the truth we need. There are tons of options out there for us, all of us, in how, to, wh- how we're going to find the divine, search out some kind of spirituality that will meet our needs. Now, more often than not, what that means to us, because we're Westerners, we're kind of in, in this world, is, that, uh, is is what we're going to find is some form of self-affirmation kind of cosmic, warm, fuzzy. It says that we're okay. And that's because it's really popular to be searching for the truth. It's really, po- it's really popular to be a seeker, to be have an open mind and be engaging in this search for truth. It's not so popular to have actually found it, right? It's not very popular to actually find the truth as long as we're still searching. And, and in reality, what we mean by truth even isn't That which corresponds to reality, what we mean is that which is helpful for us. Because all of us, to some extent, have set the bar too low. We think that the best we can hope for, the the best that we can kind of get at is what is helpful to me. Most of us in our culture, at least, when we say the word true, what we mean is helpful. That's, That's helpful to me, not that which absolutely corresponds to reality. The idea that you can actually know the truth, to know God fully... something we wouldn't even dream about but the bible tells us that if you want to know god you don't have to guess you don't have to wonder and you don't really even have to search if you want to know god all you have to do is to look to jesus now i say that some of us get skeptical right because we've been taught to be suspicious of things like that like how do you rick how can you how can you stand up there and say such a thing um Stay with me. Claims like that, if you've been here a while, you've heard me say this before, but claims like that, all of us make claims like that all the time. Every one of us makes a claim like that. Even even if our, even, even our fervent pleas for, listen, what we want is a diversity of belief and, and, and tolerance. So really, all those things are just attempts to convert people to our way of understanding reality. And our way, all of our ways of understanding reality are rather absolute, and they're rather intolerant of other views. So here's the claim of the Bible. God has revealed himself, he's made himself known, and he's sought after us. But to know him, we have to look to Jesus. The teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus is the fullest revelation of God there is. Now, that is not to say that the revelation that came before is somehow false, right? What, what the author of, the, of, of the, writer, the writer of Hebrews is not saying is that somehow the Old Testament is like, not good. It's false or or just wrong in certain places. Jesus would have never said that. As a matter of fact, he said the scripture cannot be broken. uh, And the New Testament would never teach that. Instead, what it means is that the New Testament brings into vivid color what the Old Testament simply sketched. Is that intolerant? Yes. To say that something is true will undoubtedly mean that other things are false. And the truth is ruthlessly intolerant. You know, some of you may be thinking, well, who are you to make such a claim? I would just argue I'm not the one making it. Jesus is. And I believe him because of what he did. Because when someone tells you he's going to rise from the dead and then dies and rises again, you tend to want to believe what he says. Okay? God has revealed himself definitively in Jesus. We should expect no further revelation, but more, we should not settle for anything less than him. That's the word in silence. Now let's look to the rule in chaos. First with the powerful presence. Look, keep reading in verse 2. He says, He spoke to us in his Son, who he made heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but it's important for us to reiterate. The New Testament as a whole presents Jesus not as some smart dude, not as some wise dude in his little Birkenstocks and, and robe walking around saying pithy little sayings. The New Testament presents Jesus as God incarnate. In other words, it teaches Jesus' pre-existence. And that means that before time, God the Son existed from all eternity. It says it right here. It says it again in Colossians 1. We looked at it two weeks ago. It says it in John chapter 1. It says it in a bunch of different places. Jesus is God and was the agent of creation along with the Father and the Spirit. Three persons in one God. And this is given more press we keep reading. He says, He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his being upholding all things by the word of his power. Okay, stop there. This is weighty. Let's take this a little bit at a time. First, that idea of being the radiance of his glory. Now, the glory of God in the Old Testament is this sense of otherness, this sense of weightiness, of majesty that belongs to God alone. It's not easy to define, but it's all over the place. That isn't to say that creation doesn't have its own glory, a kind of its own kind of glory, even humanity, like Psalm 8 says that humans were created and and, and crowned with glory and honor. They have a, a glory to them. but it's God's glory is for Him alone, and it is both something inherent to Him and something we acknowledge and ascribe to God. So to say that Jesus is the radiance of his glory, some of your trans- translations may say the reflection of his glory. That is to say that if you want to see God's glory, you look at Jesus. He reflects it perfectly. But he is also the exact representation of his being or the, the the ESV says the, the, uh, the exact imprint of his nature okay? uh, that that word that we translate either exact imprint or exact representation is the Greek word uh, character which doesn 't mean somebody in a play or a story it, it 's something that you would use to press a mark into something else so if you had coins and you wanted to mint them you would you would press a a character onto them. If, if you had a wax seal and you needed to seal it and put your mark on it, you would press that upon it. Um, that word being, that the exact representation of his being, um, that means what is essential to God. So when we put this together, what it says is that Jesus is the perfect reflection of God's glory, but he is also the physical manifestation of what makes God, God. Now, this is important. This whole section is stressing the unity of Jesus with God the Father, but it says it even more emphatically when it says that he upholds all things, or the ESV says the whole universe by the word of his power. Now, most of us, whether we've been taught this or just come to believe it, kind of have this basic understanding the universe is like a big machine. And at best, God kind of designed the machine and then kind of let it go. And, and it kind of does what it does. And if he ever gets involved, it's to do something really weird, something we call a miracle, right? He kind of comes in and changes things in the machine a little bit or pauses it and does something different. Um, but that is the idea of I don't know, 17th, 18th, and 19th century European, like European intellectuals. But it's not the concept of the Bible. That's what we call deism. Okay. But what the Bible teaches is is not that it's that God creates all things through his word and that his word actually uh, maintains all things, that providence is what upholds the universe, not some kind of arbitrary laws. Um, in fact, the, the, the Psalms tell us that God tells the water to go this far and no further. The book of Job says that he's marked out where everything is supposed to be. Like the Bible kind of teaches this idea that it is God's word, his power, it's personal that the, the, the powers that uphold the world, not, not some kind of big machine. All of creation is dependent on God for everything. So this passage is literally teaching us that Jesus holds all things together, all things. Whether we're talking about the smallest particles, the cells in our body, or planets and galaxies that spin throughout the universe, everything is held together by his very word. And so if we draw all of these things that he's talking about together, what he is talking about is Jesus' role as king. He's not just the final word from God. He's also the mighty king. That language of radiance and representation is, is, is language that, um, though not used quite as emphatically, is used in similar ways to talk about humanity in the Old Testament. That as, as we were created to enact God's loving rule over creation, but where we are powerless to do that, where we can't seem to make things happen the way they should, Jesus, because he holds all things together by the word of his power, can. He is powerful. He is the ruler that we were made for. And that brings us to the rain that we want. You know, the Bible doesn't try and pretend for us that that things are really pretty good and that we've just got a skewed view of things, right? It doesn't try and, and pretend that everything's really better than it is. It tells us the truth. It tells us that our world is broken. It tells us that you and I are broken. It tells us that evil is real. It's not an illusion. It's not pretend. It's real, And it touches every one of us, whether we're talking about the evil of a harsh word, the evil of praying on the weak, or the evil of murdering the innocent. But the Bible is just as clear on the fact that evil was not meant to be here. It's not inherent in the world. It's not somehow um, uh, normal or natural that comes with creation itself. That evil is just here. That instead it was brought about by humanity's desire to be independent of God. That when we betrayed God, we introduced evil into the world, and it has grown ever since. We know that things aren't right. We don't have to be convinced of that. And we look to everything else to fix it. But nothing else can. Here's what I mean. We look at injustice, we see injustice happening in the world around us, we see tragedy happening, and the first thing that we always say, you, if, if, if some horrible tragedy happens tomorrow, God forbid, the next thing you're going to hear on, the, on your 24-hour news stations is, what laws do we need to enact to keep this from happening again, right? Right? Because we have this mindset that, that when evil happens, if we just get the right ra- laws in place, if we just have the, the right legislators in office, if we just have the, the right president in, in the White House, that somehow all of these things will be made better. That all we have to do is just make the right rules. And then we enact the new rules. And it may curb one thing. But then something else pops up. Or, or worse, because of that Pesky thing we call unintended consequences because we can't see all ends, suddenly something worse happens? No matter how hard we try, we can't seem to legislate evil out of the world. We may be able to restrain it, but we certainly can't get rid of it. We can't even remove it from ourselves. And the reason for that, according to the Bible, is that evil is not about your behavior. If it were about your behavior, then then better behaviors could take care of it. The evil is actually something that's endemic, It's, it's in our hearts. And so if chaos is to be quelled, if evil is to be put down, it will be because the, the hearts of people have changed. And you and I are not powerful enough to do that, whether that's in us or in others. And so the New Testament tells us if there's any hope for that, it's going to be because of Jesus. But here's the one thing that you know, whether you are a Christian in this place or not. Jesus has come and he's made that promise. And yet... Right? And yet, he hasn't done it. And this is one of the the main reasons people get get disappointed with Jesus. I think one of the main reasons that all of us do, myself included. Evil still happens. And I don't just mean out there. Evil happens in Christians, to Christians, and through Christians. And so we get impatient because Jesus isn't fixing it right now. Why are there still orphans? Why are there still parents that have to bury their children why is there still abuse and suffering? And see, like, truth be told, this is one of the reasons why this letter to the Hebrews is being written in the first place. Because over and over again in this letter, what it'll talk about is it, it brings back this notion of suffering as if that is actually something that is going on in their lives. They're tempted to think that Jesus wasn't who he said he was because things are still not fixed for them or even around them. But you notice the point that he makes here is not to explain it away as if what we truly need, what they truly need is some kind of uh, comprehensive answer to the problem of evil. Nor does he seem to apologize for it. The point instead is that Jesus is the great high king. He is the one who has all the power, all wisdom and perfect perspective. There is no other hope than him because he is the one who holds everything together with his very word. And so if Jesus can't make it right, Nothing and no one can. But the claim of the New Testament is that he will. He's already conquered evil in his death and resurrection and will finally do away with it when he comes again. He is the king that we hope for instead of settling for restraint. Finally, let's look at a purity in failure. Look down at verses 3 to 4. He says this, When he had made purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now stop there. This can be a little odd for us. Some of us have come from, whether it's, whether it's church traditions or a family system that we were in or whatnot, that when you put together the word purification and sin, all that communicates to us is shame, right? Because we were made to feel like we are dirty, that there's something, something deeply wrong with us, and that all of our behaviors made us dirty, and so we, we get hung up on that, and you're, you're tempted to check out right now. I just need you to stay with me because this is the linchpin of the whole argument. The language that he uses here would have been common for those who were steeped in the Old Testament. Because okay? you see, the Bible tells us that though we are broken, we weren't always. And when I say we, I mean humanity, not you and I. We were always broken, but humanity wasn't. Uh, but when we as, as, a, as human, humanity sought independence from God, we betrayed him. And as you know, since you've been betrayed, betrayals bring guilt. All of them do. It, it brings guilt, and humanity came under guilt, both for that betrayal and everyone since then. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in the, the letter of the Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That, that it's not something that's just for a, a few of us, but for all of us. Now, we express that in different ways, but it's true of all of us. Some of us like to express our independence, our, our betrayal of God, by, by being very, um, just messy. Like, God, I, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. I don't need you. Thank you very much. We flip him the bird and say, have a nice day. We're done with you. Right? And, and it, it's very out there for everyone to see. And others of us, though, we have a really clean-looking independence. This says, I can be good and nice and moral on my own, God. And in fact, you should, you should feel pretty lucky to have me. I'm, I'm a pretty good dude, and so are all those that are just like me. Thank you very much. Both are broken. Both are independent of God. And so both have broken relationship with him, sinned against him, and guilty before him. And we all know this. I know that some of us are you're arguing with me in your head right now, but we know this. This is why we, we work so hard to hide from other people. This is why uh, we, we constantly try and, and perform to make up for stuff or why we feel such shame. The whole of the Bible, though, teaches that God is not asking you and I to fix this. That's not what He's about. Uh, that he promised that He would, and that's why Jesus came. He came to live in our place. And to die in our place, to live a perfect life before God that we couldn't, but then also to bear the judgment that our sins deserved. And that is exactly what our writer here means when he talks about purification for sins, that Jesus actually can wash us clean of our betrayal of God. But here's the cool part of this. Did you notice the tense? He says, after he made purification, it's in the past tense. Then there's this whole sitting down thing. That sitting down makes no sense to us, right? But it would have made sense if you had ever visited the temple in Jerusalem when it was still active. Because priests in the Old Testament do not sit down. To sit down means your job is done. And their job was never done. You can slaughter as many goats and lambs and whatever as you want, it ain't taking care of sin, and everybody knew it. That's why week after week after week you came back. You came back again. And again, and every year you had this thing called Yom Kippur, and every year you're back, and he's saying the same thing, forgive our sins, and then uh, slaughtering another animal. He never sat down, but Jesus did. The bold claim here is that Jesus could sit down because Jesus, once for all, can actually deal with our sin. After he made purification, he sat down. His work is done. There is no more cleansing we need and no more forgiveness we could get. Jesus paid it all, and there is none more for us to carry. So what does it mean for us? Just this. Remember I said this text speaks to us where we are too easily pleased. You and I feel content. Like, we, we think there's something in us, every one of us. We, we tend to think there's something wrong with me that's not wrong with everybody else. And yes, Jesus' work is good and fine for that person over there. But for me, I don't know. I mean, is it enough? Probably not. So I better hide it because it's shameful or I better try and make up for it. And we, we just carry it around and we have settled for far too little. We think, I have a high view of my sin. No, no, no. Your view is far too low. Do you really think that you could make up for it? No. It's far too low. Some of us carry, carry shame and guilt here that we think is ours forever. And we carry it because we failed. And we failed big time. And some of that is open. And for all to see, some of it, for some of us, it's been in the paper. There's public records about it. We could see it on the evening news. Like It's just out there for everyone to see. And for some others of us, it's not. But it, it's, it's still there. It's very private. We keep it hidden. None will know about it. Still others of us are desperate to know how much we have to do to make ourselves right. How many good things. How much religion, we long to be right with God, but we aren't sure how to get there. This text is telling us that so long as we remain far from Jesus, we are settling for far too little. If we want to be reconciled with God, if we want to see our failures finally dealt with once and for all, the only one we can go to is Jesus. He is the only one that we can go to who can say to us, honestly, if you come to me, I will carry your sin. I will make you clean. I will bear your shame. Do you see that? Like, if you're not a Christian here yet, do you understand? Like, he's the only one who can help you, and he's willing. And I don't just mean, like, in, the th- in theory, like, willing. Like, he's, he's willing right now. Right now. If you lay your faith on him, he will carry it for you. Is that going to somehow make it all disappear and go away? Well, before God, yes, but d- does that somehow mitigate what you've done? and similarly, well, I, That seems to make it not, not as bad. No, 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 no. It was bad enough that God himself had to die for it. But you don't have to carry the shame. You don't have to try and bear the guilt. This is what Jesus came to do. And if you are a Christian in this place, can I tell you, his work is definitive. If Jesus has borne your sin, it is gone. You don't need to carry it anymore. You don't need to carry your shame either. Jesus is the word that we need to hear. He is our prophet. He is the rule that we long to live under. He is our king, and he is the only one who can make us clean. He is our priest, and he is enough for you and for me. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask now that you would press that into our hearts. There's not a person in this room who, who is fully confident in the perfect work of Jesus. I'm certainly not. I know my friends aren't either. Whether we are, we've been Christians for a long time or we're not yet Christians, we have ways of dealing with our failures that aren't about looking to Christ. And we have settled for far too little. We have ways of thinking that we have figured out the world that aren't about looking to Christ. And we have settled for far too little. And we have ways of trying to curb uh, and and, uh, eliminate evil from the world that are not Jesus. And we have settled for far too little. So give us hearts that refuse to settle for little. And instead, drive us closer to you through the finished work of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.